This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. I really believe in the power that comes when we share our stories. It's so important to have a voice, and my guest today really believes that too. Today, I'm going to be speaking to Judge Rosemary Aquilina. Judge Aquilina earned her doctorate degree from Western Michigan, Thomas M. Cooley, Law School in 1984 after earning her Bachelor of Arts degree from Michigan State University in 1979. She is a retired Michigan Army National Guard officer. She is a civilian judge serving four years as Chief Judge and Sobriety Court Judge in the 55th District Court and now 13 years as a 30th Circuit Court. You need to put your teeth in to say some of this. (laughs) Judge Aquilina is a law professor and a motivational speaker. She is the author of Feel No Evil, Triple Cross Killer and All Rise and her memoir Just Watch Me was released December 2020 in partnership with Audible Reese Witherspoon. Judge Aquilina is the mother of five children, has three grandchildren and lives in Michigan. Unbroken healing through storytelling. I think we all have that obligation not just from the bench but with everybody in our lives. It really is that vacation for yourself, for your brain to say, I'm relaxing and everything's really going to be okay. I believe it's the people's court. It is the people's right to speak. So I let everybody speak. I announced I would let everybody speak. 169 spoke, 156 I dubbed sister survivors. Unbroken healing through storytelling. Thank you so much, Judge Aquilina, for joining me today. How are you? Great. Such a pleasure to be here and to talk with you, especially. You're welcome. So because my show is called Unbroken, the first question that I ask every guest that comes on is, what does the word unbroken mean to you? It means go through every problem with pride, with your head held up and don't listen to the naysayers and make sure that when there's a bump in the road, you go over the bump as best as you can and don't fall in the pothole. Yep. And you have definitely had a few bumps in your own life, really, haven't you? So in the UK, you are known for being the judge that sat on the Larry Nasser case. I know in America, you've been known for more high profile cases, but that's really when we heard of you. But I'd like to go back to your childhood a little bit, just to give people some background. So you were really born... Um, and grew up with your grandparents and didn't really know your parents until your your dad, your parents came along when you were just five years old and you felt like you were kidnapped because they took you back to live with them, didn't they? Yes, they. I was born in Munich and my parents met earlier. My dad went to medical school in Munich. He's Maltese. And then with two crying babies, because my brother came 11 months and two days later, Um, He couldn't study. So my mother, brother and I emigrated to live with my grandparents. And I was so young that um, what happened was that I thought that my grandparents were my parents because no one said, this is your mom and this is your dad. We all learn by our environment. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see my parents very much. And my mother was working. My father was abroad. 
And mom and dad became Nanu and Nana, which means grandmother and grandfather in Maltese. So when five years later, our family was put back together, no one said to me, well, you'll be visiting, but you're going with us because we are your parents. And even if they would have, it's too late because my bonding was with my grandparents. They were my parents. So there we are waving goodbye. And I'm feeling like I'm being stolen and kidnapped. And I felt that my whole life. And what we need to always do is to give children explanations, voice, let them ask questions and answer them honestly. And everyone in my family who I've told the story to since I was a very small child just says, well, you were stupid. Of course they were your Well, I wasn't stupid. We should never tell anybody that they're stupid for asking a question or for not knowing something. We have an obligation to inform people around us as to what's happening and why. Yep. So even from a young age, you saw justice and the, the reason to be fair to people. Yes. Uh, there's, there's one of the things I do in my courtroom, and I did as an attorney, is I spend a lot of time with people when they were clients explaining, this is the law, this may happen, this might not happen, whatever it was, I educated them. So they would have a choice in their destiny. And I do that in my courtroom as well. I tell people the consequences of what will happen if they're not, a, if they don't do well on probation. I listen to them, whether they're the victim for as long as they want me to listen. I also listen to defendants for as long as they want me to listen. And sometimes defendants bring people also to tell me about their background, because when you have the full story of what happened, you can make the most difference. I can then help the victim uh, provide restitution. I can, and other kinds of assistance. And with defendants, I can get them the right kind of treatment so they don't reoffend. And if I believe, based on the evidence that they shouldn't be in public, then I put them in lockup for life. It's a hard decision. But when you listen, you figure out what happened. You figure out the missing pieces that no one cared to listen to, like with my own life. And I think those missing pieces make the difference and value human beings. Yep. And that's what really came across. So I spent last week listening to your audible book of Just Watch Me. And it's so evident that you care. You care so much, not just for the victims, but for the perpetrators as well of any case that's up against you. Yes. And, you know, here's, I think that people don't realize this really important fact. Most people are not Nasser. Most people get out of prison. Everyone gets out of jail. And where do they go? They go next to us in the movie theaters. They're with our children in the malls. They're back out in society. They don't have a scarlet letter. If we have treated them properly, they want to do better. They know they can do better. They know they matter. If we have treated them in our justice system as animals, that is exactly how they will come out of jail and prison. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that what I do, I know works because countless people who I've incarcerated send me thank you letters. Countless come back because I invite them back and they say, I just want you to see my contract that I have with a music company. Here's my art. Here's my newborn baby. That's healthy. 
here's my 10 year sobriety token. And I did this because you were the first person who told me I mattered and that I could do something. And I find that very sad. Well, it's very bittersweet, isn't it? It's very sad that they've never had that encouragement before, but it's amazing the impact that that your encouragement can have on them. I think we all have that obligation, not just from the bench, but with everybody in our lives. If you see the next door neighbor uh, child playing basketball, say, hey, that's a great shot. Keep it up. You know, everybody needs to hear a compliment, something good about themselves, because when we feel our best, we do our best. Yeah. And we were kind of started looking at your childhood and look how easily I go off the topic. It was tough growing up in your household because it was very patriarchal, really, wasn't it? And there was poverty. You didn't have loads of clothes and you were bullied at school. Um, Your dad was was hard to live with, really, wasn't he? He still is hard to work with. And um, yes. And so I always just thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to do better. I'm going to prove them wrong. You can sink into a hole and say, oh, woe is me. But for me, I don't want to ever be in that hole. I have found my power is in and I'll show you. Yes. I will do better. I will do it right. I will make the world a better place. I am better than what you think. And I have really not only found my power doing that, but I've been able to share it with so many other women. I teach law school and have for about 30 plus years. I don't remember. I'm too old to count. Um, So many women come to me and say, I've been told I can't be a lawyer because I want to have children and I will never amount to anything. I can have the degree, but I won't use it. And I say, you know, I have five children. And that look at all that I've done. Don't let anybody define you. You can do anything you want to do. You can be who you want to be. And I think that's our life right. That is being your own champion. Authentically be you. Make decisions that promote you and your family. And you will succeed. Yep, you are definitely a living example of that because... You were, you just forged your way in all these very kind of masculine dominated environments as well, not just law, but you went into the military as well, became a judge. I can't imagine as many, too many female judges when you first started. You know, how was that working in these male dominated uh, industries or environments? It's tough. I also, I, my first job out of law school was in the legislature and I was hired. I actually had a really good interview and the senator didn't call me back. So I called him back and made an appointment. And then when I finally did meet with him, he said, what did you want to meet with me again? I said, this is my job. You haven't hired anybody. And um, he said, okay, you're hired. When I started my first day, he said, um, wow, you know, that took a lot to call me and I said, well, you knew it was my job. Why didn't you just give me the job? Why did I have to wait a month? I was getting other job offers, as I said. He said, well, you know what? You're a woman and you have to deal with all these male legislators and lobbyists. And when you called me back, I knew you'd always follow through. And then there was another hurdle where every time I, I was expected to sit on the Senate floor and testify in committee and do a lot of things. And people would say to me, oh, would you get me some coffee? Thinking I was an aide. And I I would get the coffee. And, you know, you can get mad at those things, but you can also do it with a little bit of class and grace. So I would get the coffee. I've sewn buttons on senators' jackets. I've done things that men would never be asked. And then I say, now, as an attorney, is there something that I can help you with? And, of course, that sets them back. 
And then in the military, they didn't want me either. So I thought, okay, my paperwork's there. It's been accepted. It's collecting dust. So I volunteered and I wore my tightest jeans. I was a lot thinner and prettier then. I wore my tightest jeans and my cowboy boots, which I've always worn, and uh, a reasonable shirt. And I volunteered, had coffee where the general has coffee. And then by the time I went from that first floor up to the second floor where the JAG office was, the general was screaming at the commander saying, so the general said, how do I, why is this woman here? And the colonel said, look, she volunteered. And her paperwork is somewhere. She's been accepted, but not formally. And the general said, get that woman in a uniform. He didn't want me in those tight jeans with all those men around. And so, again, I didn't have to sue anybody. What I did is I used my brains and thought, okay, they can't stop me. And I was sworn in. And when I was sworn in, he crossed out six years, wrote eight. I said, sir, please put 20. I'll stay my 20. And I did. And then he said, the only thing that would have been better is if you would have been black. Because at that point, they didn't have any minority but me in the JAG office. And so I have had these hurdles with every single job. As a judge, you think that judges aren't bullied. You're at the top of your game. You're <laughs> not. I am bullied. I've been bullied by the chief judge who's no longer there. But I'm bullied all the time by males who think they're superior to me, despite being elected to the same bench. I think that we need to get rid of this notion that men sit higher than women. We don't. We're all seated at the same table. And I just make sure that when I'm seated at that table, I don't let a man overtake my voice or my idea. I speak up and I make sure that uh, like the chandelier, I am shining brightly, not just on myself, but on everyone at the table. And I think that that is everyone's obligation. Absolutely. But how do you cope with this sexism? Because it's really that's what it is, isn't it? Uh, with a smile, because I always know that in the end, no matter what they say and do, I will rise above it and higher. And I could get mad. And sometimes I do. I put the music on louder. I go cook up a storm. I write. I do you know things for self-care. But when I come out of it, I always know that my strength will rise above their weakness and that what they're doing to me is to pull me down to their level and I will never sink that low. Yeah. And I think that keeping your power is the most important thing you can do. The minute you give in to the bullies, you're giving away your power and mine's not for sale. That's, that's a really good thing that your power is not for sale. So you do all these this, this work but alongside that your own life you have your parents living with you you're the mum of five kids uh, your your last two that you had were twins when you were 51 I believe you have yes. a puppy you have grandchildren and you're a judge and you were in the military and you write fiction and you've written your memoir do you have 24 hours in your day like everybody else <laughs> when do you <laughs> sleep <laughs> You know, I, I do sleep, but I just juggle my time the best that I can. Uh, my parents are elderly. I never wanted them to go to the nursing home, so we live together. That is challenging. And yesterday, my sister-in-law was over, and she said, would you have done this again? And I said, you know, I'm not sure. But I am sure that I never want them to go to the nursing home, so mm -hmm. probably as difficult as it is. And it's tough when you live with your parents because 
at any age, they think that you're still, you know, five years old. And in some ways, I have become their parent. And it's difficult being here, but I know it's the right thing to do. So I do a lot of self-care when I need to take time, I do. And that's why I write. And that's why I paint. And my kids um, can be difficult as well. So we take um, time to go out of the house and walk or play basketball and just get out of whatever funk we're in. I think everybody needs to do that. When you take care of yourself, you actually create more than 24 hours in a day. Because when you're not taking care of yourself, you are frittering frittering away valuable time that you're not using. So I don't have any more than 24 hours like the rest of the world. It's a question of how do you use those 24 hours? Do you use them to wallow or do you use them to win? And I also forgot to add that you are a single mom as well. You were married and then you had a relationship and, and both of them were tricky, really, weren't they? You later on realized how you had been gaslighted and, and how you had been abused. So you went down the single mom path when you decided at 51 you wanted to become a mom again. Yeah, I decided that I was doing it alone before anyway, and I wasn't ready to be just a single person. And so, yes, I had IVF and I had twins and I've learned a lot and I'm still hoping for Prince Charming and wishing that Prince Charming didn't just live in fairy tales and maybe I'll find him, but I don't need him. If a relationship works that great, but no one should need another person. They need themselves first. Yeah. And I think it's so important for anyone who's listening, what you talk about self-care, whatever profession, whatever role we have in society, stay at home, mum, we go to work, we juggle everything. Self-care is so important, really, isn't it? It really is that vacation for yourself, for your brain to say, I'm relaxing and everything's really going to be okay. There's no one that can take a vacation, you know, every month. But you can take a vacation every single day. And that's what I do with all that I do. I write because I can, if I'm mad at someone, like in my latest fiction novel, I was mad at the chief judge. I sat down and killed him off in a book. I would never do that in real life, but it felt really good to do it in this story. And it made me smile. So I took something that was just really horrifying and turning my gut into laughing about it. And I think if we can do that every single day about whatever ails us, I think that is continuous joy in our life and it rids us of the unnecessary pain that every single human suffers. Yeah. And is that how you cope with all that you must hear in your courtroom? Because you must hear the worst of humanity, really. You must hear some pretty awful cases. I see and hear the worst of what people do to each other. And yes, I go home and hug my kids and do the self-care. My lunch hours, I might write, uh, I might take a walk, but that keeps me then fresh for the next case because every single case deserves my full attention. So you have to be fresh. You can't worry about what you heard in the last case. And it's important that we be 100% present, not just for our jobs, but for our family. So the self-care every day helps everything we do. Absolutely. So um, in the UK, really, we heard about you a couple of years ago when you were the judge on Larry Nasser's case. What made you decide to give the women, uh, you call them the, the sister survivors, allow them all to share their impact statements with him? Because it went on for many days, wasn't it? The sharing of their stories. Seven days. 
I've always done that since I was a district judge. So I've been a judge now for 17 years. Back then it was, I don't know, 14 or 15 years. But anyway, I have always let everybody speak. And the victims come back and talk to me or I see them around town and they say, you know, that's helped me heal. It was the first time somebody actually validated me. So I know that it works. And the Nasser case, I didn't know anything about him. I'd never met him. I didn't ever notice him on the Olympics. I didn't watch the Olympics much. My family watches and would say, go watch this person on the vault or on the skis. And I'd see it then. I knew nothing about him. We were just ready to go to trial. I had pulled 800 jurors. We were going to start jury trial. And a couple of days before that, the attorneys came to me and said, would you accept a plea? And they told me what it was. And the prosecutor said, and we want uh, more than just the seven counts that he'll plead to to speak. And I said, that's not a problem. I let everybody speak. And the defense said, everybody. And I said, yes. And they said, well, there's some people we don't want to speak. Like, for example, there was a doctor um, who was upset with Nasser. And I said, everyone means everyone. So they did a plea agreement that Nasser signed, thankfully, that said a cap of 125 but I've never put a limit. I've never put a time limit. I believe it's the people's court. It is the people's right to speak. So I let everybody speak. I announced I would let everybody speak. 169 spoke, 156 I dubbed sister survivors because many of them hadn't planned to speak. Many of them hadn't planned to use their names. Many of them didn't know each other. But one empowered the next, empowered the next. And if you watch the film that's out there, I haven't seen it, but I very well recall that many times a sister survivor who would come up would be joined with one or two of the others who have spoken or were going to speak. And they would address him and they would say, I am not a number, I am a name. And you could see them and feel them as they spoke to him taking back their power. And they grew from just tiny little figures to just mountains of strength. And then I chatted with them. And let me just tell you that I was getting calls and texts and emails saying, I'm a therapist, can I help you? And they didn't need any help because each and every time one of them spoke, it was like being handed a new baby and you don't, for, you don't remember the pain right? You, you forget the pain. All you see is that beautiful baby. And that's all I saw were 156 beautiful thrivers. And then there were others who spoke. Like I said, there was a doctor who said to him, I'm mad at you. I trusted you with my patients and you, you failed me. And so it was very um, taxing, but it was very moving. It was very uplifting. There was so much pain that literally stayed in my courtroom and people walked out happier, lighter, and relieved when they walked out of my courtroom. Well, it, across the pond over in the UK, it was so impactful watching that courtroom scene, just listening to these women share their stories. Because like you, I believe that we are stronger together. You know, there is safety in numbers. And it was incredible watching they were like phoenixes, phoenixes or phoenix eyes, just rising, yeah. rising from the ashes. And you could see them getting their wings really flying and definitely lighter. And what I loved about your book is how you prepare your courtroom. You had the therapy dogs waiting outside for them in case anybody needed them. But it doesn't sound like anybody did. 
Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I know they were present. I know there were people to help them. Uh, I know some of the girls had some difficulties. Um, but I did set up the courtroom so that it was safe for the girls, but also safe for Nats, where I was criticized for putting him in the witness chair. Um, but it was safer for him to be there. And otherwise, the girls would have had to constantly turn back to see him because of how the courtroom set up. And that wasn't fair to him or to them or to the court reporter who has to take down every word. But I also met with three different police agencies because they all have their jurisdictions. So so that if there would have been a problem, they would have, would have whisked Nasser right out the back door because somebody was ready to attack him. And obviously yeah. in one of the other courtrooms that did happen. But my courtroom was set up for safety. And of course, that's my military training that came in there. And I think it really worked. It worked well. Everybody had their place. It was it was a safe space so that everyone felt that they could speak and be heard and be believed. And as you said, they rose. Yeah, and I think there's nothing more powerful than being heard, listened to, and more importantly, being believed. You know, I was interviewing someone whose episode actually goes out today. This one won't be aired till about September. And she said, one day a woman will say that she was raped and she will be believed. And you think, isn't that sad that we still have so much victim blaming? Well, and rape victims, people of domestic assault, human trafficking, all of they want, all they want in the whole world in the justice system is to be treated like any other case. If someone tells the police there's a home invasion or a car theft, they're automatically investigating and doing the right things. Why are rape victims treated as less? This is a huge, huge problem. And that's, again, another reason one of the media outlets said, you know, I was I was a therapist. Well, I'm not a therapist. I'm just a judge trying to make a reasonable decision. And what I do is I use my robe for healing. Yep. I think that when a powerful person listens, that power is then shared to the person who's speaking. And you make you make it very clear in your book that you're not a therapist, but what you're great at is signposting the person, the victim, the perpetrator towards the right services. You know, if they need drug and alcohol services, if they need therapy, if they need whatever, you will find whatever they need to help them improve their life and, and grow. So that was really evident. You really, you have a heart the size of a bus. That's what came across listening to your book. It was fantastic. Well, thank you. I just really, I think that right now it's a system of injustice and we need to get to a system of justice. I don't know how we got so broken, but it needs to be fixed. And I I think people are seeing that, and I'm hoping that we all can partner together, men and women, yep. and people in all places of work, to fix this. And that's why your show is so important. Having these conversations, awareness, yep. will help change the world. Absolutely. Sadly, in the UK, it's almost decriminalized rape because of all cases that make it to court, it's a few percent. I live in Scotland. It's worse than England. Maybe four or five percent will end in a conviction. So you, you think... Why would you bother going to court? It's so traumatizing, re-triggering, and likelihood he's going to get off and you won't be believed. So absolutely, there's so many changes that need to be made in, in courts across the world, really. Well, training for judges, police officers, you know, it's interesting that when you read police reports, 
And they talk about victims of domestic violence, uh, sexual assault, etc. They do more of an investigation that contains interrogation. Why would you interrogate a victim of yeah. any crime, but especially yeah. sexual assault? Absolutely. They need to ask questions about how they can help them, um, what they can do to make it better, and make the questions, because they do have to ask investigative questions, but make the questions not sound like this person is lying. Yep. And if, we, if we're not fixing that, then the problem is never going to go away. And I don't want to blame solely police officers, but I've heard judges, colleagues say, well, why were you wearing that? Why were you out so late? We've had the same here. (laughs) Absolutely. And there's nothing worse. And we know it's not about clothing because we know babies are raped. We know women and burkas are raped. Boys and jeans are raped. You know, it's not what you drank because alcohol doesn't cause rape. A hundred percent of all rapes are really caused by rapists and nothing else. Nothing else. Yes. It's about power and control. And as I've said, you know, we need to retire the word why, because why shames and blames and ask. What would you like me to do? How can I help? Yeah. And um, then the real story. Absolutely. I'm interested in what the response was um, after the NASA case with you. I heard, and still here to this day, almost every day, but I heard initially for months and months from thousands of people all over the world, countries I'd never even heard of, uh, saying, wow, we need more judges like you. Thank you for what you've done. I felt like... You were talking to me. I felt like the girls were telling my story. And instead of cutting, instead of uh, killing myself, I am seeking help. I know that I matter because you told me I matter. But then there were always a few from some countries and from my own bench, from judges around the world who said, how dare you? You don't deserve to be on the bench. And there were a couple of judges who said to me, to my face. Now that you've done this, we all have to do it. We can't do less. And, you know, my feeling is if you want to do less, then retire and go pour coffee somewhere because that kind of attitude we do not need in the judiciary anywhere. Yep. And I can imagine how healing it was for other people to hear, especially women, young girls that hadn't even found their voice yet. When they saw their vulnerability and their bravery in speaking out, it really, really does encourage other people to find their voice. It's, I think it's fantastic. I just wish we could clone you and put you into courts all over the place. <laughs> and there were a lot of men who said, you know, I was raped as a boy or, or I was you know, raped as a man or in the military or wherever. There's rapes that happen to men all over the place. Yes. And I think in the male in the prison system in America, the statistics of male rape is huge. Horrible. And many of them said, when I saw those little girls tell their story, I told mine. And so I want you to know that you opened the door for me, too. And I was just so honored that people felt that. Yep. Oh, it just moves me every time. And that really is the purpose of the podcast and the purpose of speaking out because it is so healing to hear other people's stories. And I like how you say that it opens the door for them, which they've maybe closed tight for many, many years. And I think when one door opens, then another door opens and then another door opens and then we we grow and we expand. Right. When you get into the lesbian, gay, trans, queer, you know, the whole you know other culture that people don't want to talk about 
they are raped, almost half of them. Yeah. You can just go down the street and if you, you have a, a, a gay friend or trans, you know, they'll tell you, but the statistics bear it out. And they also came out and said, wow, we're going to talk to. So this problem, it's a systemic problem. It has to change. We have to listen. And all of these crimes against humans, I don't care what your sexual preference is or your gender or your religious belief, we are all humans. And we need to get treated equally when we report any kind of crime. And crimes that deal with sex no one wants to talk about or believe that it happens well it happens it's probably happening in your neighbor's house listen report do what you can do otherwise this culture of silence and broken people will remain and i want to leave this world a better place a safer place for all of our children and i'm hoping that everybody partners together for that voice for that change and for that safety Absolutely. I hope my children never know the things that I've known. And, you know, the world is a different place. So it just really leaves me, uh, Judge Aquilina, to thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me. I actually could speak to you all day. I would encourage anyone to listen to your audio book, Just Watch Me, because you are a force. You really are a force for good and just so much positivity and light i just i just loved it uh, thank you so much thank you and just everybody out there talk take action treat yourself with kindness and i can't thank you enough for spending this time with me and and for inviting me to your show unbroken healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast with Madeline Black.